Colossians chapter 4, which is kind of funny because I'm in Mark chapter 4. I don't know, the number looked right anyway. Here we go. Wrong book, Mark. Colossians chapter 4. That's the only thing. I love that somebody decided a few years ago to start making Bibles with three bookmarks. This is like, this is like giving a preacher a Porsche almost, you know, it's just awesome. Although a Porsche would still be nice. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Wrong church. <laughs> we're, we're not going to take a collection for a new Citation 10 this morning either. Colossians chapter 4 will be in. <laughs> we're, 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 we're the other end of the spectrum, right? So there'll be a collection for a smart car later. Uh, Colossians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 2 and uh, read this text together. This is a short paragraph this morning. And this is actually... Uh, this is the, our, our close. The rest of the letter of Colossians is personal addresses. And I know back in the 70s, we would have spent six more weeks on personal addresses, right? They would have said, we would have gone down to like uh, uh, verse 4, our dear friend Luke the doctor. And we would have spent a Luke on Luke the spent a Luke. We would have spent a Luke. We would have spent a lifetime on Luke the doctor. Actually, when I was a kid, it was worse than that. You would have gone, uh, where'd that go? And now our, de- our, our dear friend Luke. Now, in the Greek, the word dear means, and that'd be a week. The next week, you'd look at friend. The next week, you'd look at Luke. The next week, you'd look at the comma in between, just the way it was. But we're going to skip all those personal addresses. You can, you know, got to leave you something to study at home, right? And just look at this, this paragraph this morning as we wrap this up. And it's a, it's a good way. This is Paul's summary, a uh, little paragraph at the end of his letter. And I would encourage you, uh, very seriously, to go back and reread this letter. It's been a while since we started. And I said it when we started, and I'll say it again. Chapter 1 alone is incredible. When you look at Paul's description of who Christ is and his nature, and that matters. Uh, 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 an Orthodox, an Antiochian Orthodox friend of mine said, if you don't have your Christology, that's the study of Jesus for us, right? If you don't have your Christology right and healthy, nothing else matters. And Colossians chapter 1 is Paul speaking to this church saying, let's get Jesus right. Let's see who he is and what that means and, and, and how that impacts us. So I encourage you, go back and, and reread it as a whole in one sitting because that's always best. Then you get the impact of it as a letter. And that's, that's good to do every now and then as we go through this because we're, we're going bit by bit. Let's read this together. Uh, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And I, I'm gonna st- I am going to stop there. You remember how many times he said thankful just in chapter 3 alone? Constant theme for Paul. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may may proclaim it uh, clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Uh couple of things here before we, we dive into this. And uh, as I said, I, w- I really do encourage you to go back and to read the whole letter. We come to this and we're kind of reminded a little bit of some things we might have forgotten by the time we get to chapter 4. And one of those is, where was Paul when he wrote this? And I remember in the introduction I said that this is not just like a light little detail. That Paul wrote to this young church trying to help them understand Jesus so that they would understand themselves and understand the church and the kingdom. 
that when he wrote this to these people, he writes it from a prison. And how would you uh, receive a letter? How would you feel when you received a letter from somebody who is kind of a mentor or a father in the faith or a mother in the faith, and they write you, but they don't just write you. They write you in your freedom from their place of imprisonment. And what does it mean to know that he's in a Roman prison or under house arrest, that he would write to you and speak to you about freedom in Christ? It changes your perspective of what he might say when you understand that he's not talking theory and he's not speaking from an abstract place. He's not saying this as somebody who's never suffered. A friend of mine, a missionary friend of mine, said just this morning on Facebook, he said, people who have never ever suffered in their life are going to have a hard time teaching you because most of what the, th- the things that they say are naive. He's not cutting anybody down. He's not saying that's a bad thing. You don't want people to suffer. But it's just, it's just true. And Paul doesn't write to the Colossian church and tell them to stand up for the faith without having lived it and done it first. He's standing for the faith. He's in jail for the faith. When he writes to, to different churches about how you can make it through, you can endure, you can hold on, he's holding on himself to the rope saying it. He's not saying it from a lazy boy in front of a TV. He's lived the life. He's lived the struggle. He's lived the suffering. And he means what he says. And he's done what he says. And he's struggled with what he says. Some of the things that he's teaching. He is teaching from a place of having wrestled and failed. But been forgiven and gotten up and learning. Learned again and again and again some of these things. And so all of those things matter. When you go to read a letter... And, and when you go to, to try and understand where he's coming from and the things that he says. So it, it makes sense that in verse 2, the first thing he says is, devote your lives to prayer. In everything that he has said, he says, you spend a lot of time with Jesus. Talk to him. Listen for him. Devote your life to prayer. And not just to pray. He says being watchful. That's kind of an interesting thing to say. I want you to pray and watch. Not just pray. Pray and watch. What do you watch for? You may be watching for answers. You may be watching for some of the things he had warned about earlier in the letter. He's had to tell them, listen, some of the guys who are teaching you are off the, off the charts crazy. Okay? What things they're saying are my, my word in my house uh, that I... I say to my children, because this is a nice way you can describe some things to your children, they're just wackadoo. I don't know if that's a real word or not, but that's, that's you know, you all know that word. He says some of these folks are just wackadoo. Wonky, if y'all just got back from the UK. It's just a bit wonky, right, some of these people. Did y'all hear that? You should have heard that. They didn't hear it. I'm taking you back then. We'll go back and you'll hear it. So that's a good word, wonky. Uh, I, le- I learned it from my wife when she got back. And that's just the way it is. And he says, you need to be watchful for that. Don't just swallow everything that comes. Pay attention. When you're praying, pay attention. There are times that you're praying. You say, well, I I listen, but I never hear God say anything back. No, you know, most of us don't. Okay? Some of you hear all kinds of people talk back. I don't know what you're hearing. But, you know, who knows what you hear? But listen anyway. You ever thought about that? There are times when the Spirit who lives in your heart by promise of of God, we are told that when we are believers baptized into Jesus Christ, the Spirit comes to live within us and He goes to work. He doesn't lie dormant. He goes to work. 
And we don't always understand how. We don't always understand what He's up to. But we know that part of His job is to convict us. And that's convicting of sin when things need to change. And that is convicting of good that needs to be done and things that need to be said. Pray and watch. Listen. Pay attention to what God's doing. It may be that you're praying that God will work something out. And He's saying, well, if you'd open your eyes, I've already been working on it right over there. Look at that. Pay attention and see what I'm doing is what God would probably say to us a lot of the time and be thankful. Always thankful. And Paul just keeps coming back to that one over and over again. And he says, and pray for us too. We've got work to do. And he says, I'm in prison, but I still want to find opportunities. And that's, that's kind of what I want to focus on. He goes on and tells them to make the most of every opportunity. And the title is to make the most of every kingdom opportunity because that's what he's talking about by context. And sometimes we will take those phrases out of the Bible and we want to baptize them not into Christ but into our plans, right? And so we read things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that means that I know that I'm going to be able to jump a six-foot hurdle in the next... Why would there be one? But who knows? A six-foot hurdle in the next run. Well, you know what? That wasn't what he was talking about. I'm going to let that sink in because I want to make some of you mad about it. I'm hoping. That wasn't... I'm kind of hoping... And that wasn't what he was talking about. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, Lord, please, would you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Right? Janice Joplin. That's not what he's talking about either. I, I don't know that he really cares all that much about what we drive, positive or negative. You know, he probably is fine with whatever we buy according to his blessings as long as we'll use it to his honor and to his glory. If we're going to just use it for ourselves, he probably starts to care a whole lot. You know? We use those things, and we'll use things like that, make the most of every opportunity. And so we start to, to baptize into how we build our resumes or how we, we listen for opportunities to exploit, unfortunately, in some ungodly ways, sometimes people to exploit. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the gospel. I want to share with you an example of that uh, through the example of Corey Ten Boom. And I don't know some of you have, have likely read her uh, story, her her uh, account of what happened to her in a concentration camp. Corey Ten Boom and her her sister Betsy were at the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. She was actually there. That's kind of what people know a lot of. She was actually there after having been in jail in Holland for months because she was caught as part of a conspiracy to sneak Jews out of uh, dangerous parts of Holland. She you know, hid people in a false room in the wall of her bedroom and all of this. It's an absolutely incredible story called The Hiding Place. If you've never read it, go get The Hiding Place. Excellent, excellent, excellent book. And transformative in the example set by some of the people she talks about, one of whom was her sister. You know, The story is, is about her and her her life, but she talks a lot about her father and, and family and one of her sisters, the one that was in, in prison and in the concentration camp with her. And she said this when telling her story. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and you jump off. You still sit and trust the, the engineer. That has to do with watching and praying, doesn't it? Be patient. God is going to do something here. Now, that's the important twist on this that is her story. And it's very much the point of her story. Not just that we sit and trust the engineer that God is going to make it better for us. 
her story, which honestly, if you read the story, she learned a lot of her attitude and a lot of her faith perspective from her sister who just had like this incredible, like the Jesus version of the word childlike faith. It's just absolutely incredible. Her sister constantly was looking for opportunities to share Christ in a concentration camp. Well, now, so was Corey Ten Boom. She was also looking for those opportunities, but she, she says several times that she was thinking about her fellow prisoners. She wasn't thinking about necessarily other people. And so when, when she would talk about we could have a Bible study, she was talking about having a Bible study in the barracks where she was at this concentration camp. And she was able to do that. Incredible little side story that she tells. When they first get there, the most miserable part of the experience the first couple of days was that the place was absolutely infested thick with fleas. And, and she just spent the entire night bitten and eaten up by fleas. And it, she said that was almost worse than the guards and the knowledge of the smokestack outside and you know what that was for and all of these things. Just those fleas, you know how that gets when you get that. Some of y'all are going to start doing this. I can, that actually itched, by the way. That, some of y'all, I meant me. I'm going to start. Uh, but... She says that was absolutely miserable. At the end of her story, she talks about how she was amazed that they were able to have these worship services and Bible studies and prayer sessions in the barracks because if she'd been caught with the Bible, she likely would have been shot. She kept one hidden right here under her robe. Had it all the time up until the moment they stripped her down to, let, to have an examination so that she would be freed. She had that Bible between her shoulder blades, hidden, and got through the whole thing okay. And she wondered how in the world that could have happened. She remembered back to what her sister had said. Her sister had said, don't get so mad, Corey, about, about the fleas. Who knows, but what they got, this may too may be a gift from God. And you know what you would think if you were getting flea-bitten, right, in that moment in a concentration camp? Guards, I need a new, <laughs> I need a new roommate here. <laughs> Something you'd be, you'd be throwing that sister under the bus. You go, this lady is crazy. Well, what happens is later on when she's wondering why in the world doesn't, don't they ever come in here and stop us? One day she notices toward the end of their imprisonment that the guards were all at the door and there was something going on and they really needed to inspect it, but none of the guards would come in. And they're over at the door bickering over which one of the German guards is going to go in because nobody wanted to go in because of all the fleas. And she says, isn't that incredible that what I thought of from the very first moment as a curse, God was using as a protection for us to be able to do His work in a really dark place. And that's, that's incredible. That kind of an attitude in that kind of a place is incredible. But again, she gets that from her sister who also lived out this verse right here. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. They did that. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. She speaks about, Paul did this, Paul lived it. You know, Acts 16, he, Paul and Silas start the church in Philippi. 
uh, well, extend the church in Philippi. They'd already started it. Uh, but uh, extend the church in Philippi by preaching the gospel to the jailer after the earthquake because they were looking for every single opportunity they could get. They did the same thing. One night, Corey Timboom talks about her sister and how she was dreaming of this, this place that would exist after they got out of prison. And she said she starts describing it to her and talks about what's in the staircase, what's in the entrance and all of this. And she says, it'll be a wonderful place. And we will get all of the, the broken, the wounded, all of those who have been hurt by this horrible war. And we'll gather them together and we will minister to them. And they will know the healing that we know. They will know the peace that we know. And they will know the joy that we know. And she's saying all this on a broken down, flea-bitten platform in a barracks at a concentration camp. A concentration camp where they had heard in one night 700 men shot. Concentration camp where they had seen bodies discarded, piled up in a bathroom after people, women prisoners had died. Where children were sterilized and some left to starve to death. She says, maybe they'll know the peace and the grace that we know. And one of the things that's interesting is Corey Timboom does go on to establish this home after she is released. She establishes it in Holland. A very wealthy lady comes to her and says, you know, I want you to pray for my son to come back. I've not heard a word from him. And I had this strange conviction that he'll come back. And I also have a strange conviction that I need to give my home to your work when he comes back. A while later, the son comes back and this wealthy woman gives basically her mansion to be used as a place for healing. And that's, that's what she does after, making the most of every opportunity. By the way, her sister's description of the home, which she had never seen, was the home that was used. She had said God had shown her a work that could be done. That's what happens when you pray and watch. Pray and listen. Pray and are thankful, even in the darkest of times. Absolutely incredible. And not only is all of this, I mean, some of this might seem really out there, but all of this is documented and history. This is recent, for really and truthfully, in, in the big picture, recent history. She went on and gave witness to all these things up until she died of a stroke in the 80s in California. So this is, this is well-known history. You can go on YouTube and watch her story. Uh, they've put it there for free because Franklin Graham back in the 70s had a movie made. Franklin, no, his father, Billy Graham, had a, had a movie made uh, about that. Look back here. There's a couple other things. It says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I've highlighted a few things here. Oh, man. And some of them, it took away when I converted the file over. Oh, well. Devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful, be thankful, be wise. Make the most of every opportunity. And again, every kingdom opportunity. Keep your eyes open for what God can do through you in the moment where you are. It's very important. 
Because it's so easy for us to just live every day. We just do our thing. We go buy our bread. We get our eggs. We do this. We do that. We get our gas. We say hi. We talk about the weather. We blah, 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 blah. We get upset. We cry. We forgive. We whatever. But we don't ever take any opportunities to expand the kingdom any further. We, we do our ministries. We do, uh, I don't know. Whatever it is we do, we feed people and clothe people and, and do VBS and do uh, different seminars from time to time, all this kind of stuff. But whatever of that that we do, we sometimes start to treat as if it's just something we've got to check off. Okay, we did that for this summer or we did that for this spring or we did that for this winter. You know, we did our, our, our trunk or treat or we did our whatever and we just check them off as done. God's work isn't done. There is no check. You don't get to do that. Every opportunity that we get, every chance that we have, every encounter with somebody outside of Christ is an opportunity that God has put right into your lap to spread the gospel. In whatever way, big or small, you know, it's not always huge, but in whatever way, big or small, that you can do that, He's given that to you. Even in a concentration camp. What Corey said surprised her the most was when she realized that this vision and this dream that her sister had wasn't for the people of Holland and Poland and all the other countries who were in this concentration camp. She said it hit her. She didn't use the phrase like a brick wall, but that's the idea of what she said. Hit her like a brick wall when she realized her sister was talking about the guards. She was talking about the Germans, the Nazis who had beaten them, embarrassed them, killed some of them. She was talking about them, that they were the ones who were also hurt. They were the ones who were damaged. They were the ones who needed Jesus. And she wanted to live long enough. She ended up not being able to, but she wanted to live long enough to minister to them. Wednesday night prayer session after the Tuesday of 9-11, one of the brothers leading our prayers in Bonham prayed for the hearts and the souls of those who had organized all of that. He didn't pray for their fiery death in hell. He didn't pray for a bomb to turn it all to sand. He prayed they would come to Christ. What was your prayer? What will be your prayer on Wednesday? What is your vision? A vision of enemies? A vision of a darkness that we just have to assume stays darkness? Or is your vision of the world one where light conquers darkness? Where even the dimmest light conquers the deepest darkness? I'll give you an example. Because it's not all theory. Corey Timboom writes later, this is from a 1972. Ooh, wee, that's a, just a year younger than me. Um, that's 1972, she is talking about how she is still learning to forgive. I think we can understand that, right? She was in a concentration camp, she lost family members. Her father died in jail, her sister in a concentration camp. 
She writes this, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have to read it to you, but I, I just I want to get it in her words, not mine. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. This is in 1947. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. By the way, she's in Germany because she believes what we just talked about. And she's gone back there. She feels sorry for them and believes they need to know Christ. She says, I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to most hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. because Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, I saw a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You, re- you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. He did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again had to be forgiven. And I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply? By asking? It could, have been, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. Or I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it I excuse me, I knew it not only as a commandment of God but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war I had had a home in Holland for vic- excuse me for victims of Nazi brutality. 
Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter how bad the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You, God, supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I do forgive you, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Every moment we have, even the most difficult moments of our life, even those brought on by pain and suffering, are a moment God can make the most of. They are a moment where God can bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in you. They are moments where all we have to do is, like Isaiah, say, God, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips, but here am I. Send me. I'll do it. And in that moment, she stretches out her hand, asking God for help the entire way, and that's the way it works, isn't it? And He changed two people in that moment. He'll change you too when you answer the call to make the most of every opportunity you've got to share with those who also have been bruised and broken by Satan's war in this world. Today we offer to you an extended hand. We offer to you an open door to join Christ in His work in this world. Through faith in Him, He calls you through obedience to follow Him into the waters, to be buried with Him and raised to this new life. He calls you so that in every moment He can use you as light at the end of somebody's tunnel. Today is the day that you decide to put on Christ or if you need prayer so that you can see that light, we encourage you to come as we stand and as we sing.